to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and uh, if you don't have your own copy of Scripture, you can turn uh, in your pew Bible to 953. We'll be looking at the entire chapter together, and our chapter that we're looking at today continues Paul's argument that goes all the way back to chapter 1. It's an extended argument that will continue on into next week. So Paul lays out that there are divisions in the Corinthian church, and then he sets about how do we remedy that. And uh, as we saw at the latter half of chapter 1, we remedy that by embracing our various roles within God's economy of how He spreads out and how He welcomes you and me to be a part of that, albeit a finite uh, points of that, of, of our responsibilities and our roles as His uh, ministers. And He reminds us that though we're insignificant in the world's eyes, that He says at the end of chapter 1 that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. God still calls you into His great work. And then He talks about in chapter 2 the vehicle of by which he accomplishes this reconciliation that he'll talk about this ministry of reconciliation later on in the Corinthian correspondence here, but that he speaks about this vehicle that God uses to effect this declaration of God's rule over all of the cosmos through the mysterious and foolish preaching of the gospel. And he ends that chapter by introducing uh, another dichotomy. See, he's talked about various dichotomies of strength and weakness, of wisdom and foolishness, and then he introduces this, these two concepts of being spiritual and fleshly. Being spiritual and fleshly, and there have been a lot of volumes, a lot of books, a lot of commentaries written about what this means, but for the sake of brevity, let me just explain this really briefly, that you and I are flesh and spirit, but what Paul is arguing for is that we are not meant to be merely flesh and merely spirit, as though that is all that matters. Paul is not, in other words, advocating for a Neoplatonic idea where the spirit is more important than the flesh. He's not saying that the flesh as it is that you and I have, the, the, the flesh that we have is bad, and a lot of Christians get that upside down. We think that, well, Paul is all about the flesh and the spirit is what really matters. The flesh is, is bad stuff. Well, he's using these technical terms to say, don't be merely led by your passions and by the passions of the flesh. Don't let what you want to do trump what you should do. But then also you need to realize, you and I need to realize that God has given us souls and bodies. And the Lord is going to redeem both of those things when He returns. We're not just going to be floating spirits in the heavens, but that the Lord Jesus will return in physical form and we will be raised like Him in His glorious body as well. And so we have flesh and spirit, but we are not called to merely live by the flesh in such a way that we deny that God has also given us new life by His Spirit. We need to be given a different compass as it were, that the Lord gives us the lodestar, the north star of the Spirit, and we are called to keep in step with the Spirit, as he says. Now, I can't get into all the particulars of Pauline theology on sarks, right? The flesh is what this Greek word is, and, and the Spirit. I can't get into all that right now because that's not the, the main point of what he's talking about in chapter 3, but it does bear mentioning here that Paul is not against 
the, the physicality of our lives. But he is against the idea that this is all that matters. Okay, in other words, what he wants the Corinthians to do in order to remedy these divisions that he's introducing, that he's responding to in chapter 1, is he, he's wanting them to say, your flesh is going to be redeemed in the last day, and so you need to live your lives in such a way that the finite flesh is also included in the spacious spirit, that you are flesh and spirit together. So let's, let me kind of lay that out a little bit further here and, and track Paul's argument leading up into chapter 3. He says this, In chapter 1, verse 30, what does he say? He says, because of God's calling in your life, you are in Christ. This is a huge category in Paul's understanding. In other words, you have been swept into, swept up into the great ocean of God's mercy. And the great challenge now as being born by the Spirit of God is that you are to cut anchors, cut ties with the things that guided you before and let the wind carry you where He will. And he does it again in chapter 2, verse 16. He says, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? And the quick answer might be nobody. Nobody has the mind of the Lord which at one level is true, and yet Paul doesn't respond that way, does he? Because he doesn't want people just living merely in the flesh. So what does he say? He says, no, 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 but us, literally. He's saying, but us, we have the mind of Christ. Let me just say this in brief, that the great power and beauty of what you and I are called to proclaim in the world is that God is not ashamed to call us friends, and not only friends... But He invites you and me into His divine plans and purposes, His story of redemption that God is not just saying, okay, yeah, I'll, 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 you can join me if you want. No, he, that's part of the redemptive plan is to carry with Him a great train of witnesses. And God says, I want you to be my ambassadors. I want you to be my ministers. And a lot of Christians, we just kind of sit on the sidelines and observe as opposed to being involved in what God has called us to do. So in order to be able to... Uh, support his argument, Paul gives us four images, and those are going to form the four points of our message today. These four images that Paul uses to help continue his argument of how we go about unifying what is divided. And the first image is infant. So he talks about infants, farmers, tradesmen, and fools. Those are the four points of our message today. Infants, farmers, tradesmen, and fools. So let's just read the first, um, the first four verses. This is where we get our first point. This first image that Paul gives us. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, But I, brothers, couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you aren't ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, 
are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So the first way that we remedy divisions is to be really honest have an honest assessment of how we are acting, how we are living our lives, between what we say we believe and how we think we believe, and then when reality hits the fan, what really is spread all over the wall. In other words, Paul is looking at the Corinthians square in the face, and he says, you all have divisions in your congregation because you're babies. That's pretty offensive. If I were to say to you, you're just being a big baby, would you like it? That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He's saying, you are being a bunch of infants who don't have teeth, who are gumming at the bottle, when God has called you to so much more. You're acting like little babies when there are divisions in your congregation. We can chuckle a little bit. In fact, we we should chuckle a little bit. But we ought to pause for a moment and consider ourselves in this picture, which is always very indicting and very humiliating, and it ought to be. See, you and I can presume that we are spiritual because we can talk the talk. We know the words. In fact, we know the certain phrases that we can say so that we can sound very spiritual when in fact we aren't. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. The Lord has been so kind to me. Brother, doing really well. God is faithful even though you are despising what God is doing in your own life. In the dark night when you are by yourself, You have envy of other people in a congregation. You have jealousy because somebody else is getting a promotion and you're not. But you and I can oftentimes say, we can use the the Christian language to kind of get people off our backs so that we can kind of keep people at an arm's distance. And what Paul is saying is that is no better than just infants. We oftentimes will hear it where we say, hey, what church network are you in? That's what is real popular among pastors. Hey, what church network are you in? Or, what denomination are you? Or, maybe this will hit a little bit more at home, are you a social justice warrior? Are you a freedom fighter? Because if you answer yes to any of those questions, then I know where to put you in the whole boxes of categorization. Then I, don't, then I know what to do with you. I just have a question. When did it not become enough to identify as a Jesus follower? See, when you and I banter around as factionalists, we are acting as mere mortals, mere humans who have put their hope in who they claim to be their leader. I wonder how many of us had a little hair stand up on the back of our neck when I prayed for President Joe Biden. And I wonder if after the election cycle, if whoever wins, if the other people might think the same thing. In fact, I had someone, this is out of the manuscript, I have someone who said to me, I, I can't come back to this church because you prayed for the president. I was like, we're, we're commanded to pray for our leaders. 
And we'll pray for whoever's in office because we're commanded to pray for whoever's in office. I don't care who you vote for, but the question is really, as it comes down to the grassroots of the church, and this is what I mentioned, if you want to go back to chapter 1 where I talk through a little bit more of this, we can do this in theological circles too. And uh, the Lord would say we've got to stop the divisions in the church, but then even as it relates to our micro church. We, we enjoy a great camaraderie and a great unity in our church here at Redeemer, and we ought not to take that for granted. And we ought to pray that God would keep us unified because Satan, my friends, I promise you this, is on the prowl. On the conversations I have with individuals, Satan is on the prowl to try to pull any one of us away and cause us to backbite and fight with one another through little comments that we drop. And we have to fight for unity. A lot of times what Paul is saying we can often be like is the kid who's on the playground who says, I want to take my ball and go home. I don't want to talk to you anymore because you believe that about this passage of Scripture. As opposed to like, huh, maybe we should talk through this together and maybe we could actually come to an understanding of one to another. So let's take a, a quick inventory. When you, you see Aunt Maud, hopefully that's a, an, enough strange name to, to where it doesn't offend anyone too much, but when you see Aunt Maud on Facebook make that other post, do you roll your eyes? Or when you see someone making fun of someone in another theological camp, do you find yourself licking your chops, even though you're, you're intelligent enough and mature enough to not say anything, in your heart of hearts you're like, yeah, get him, go get him. <laughs> That's just as infantile as the person who posts crazy things. But see, we see here in Paul's assumption that we are not to stay as infants. Implicit within the imagery is the call for you and me to be rebuked. And it is a good thing to be rebuked. A lot of times we can think like, I don't want to hear the hard things. Just tell me, tell me good things. It's actually really good to say, hey, you need to grow up a little bit. You're not acting your age. You're not acting in accord with who you are called to be and who you are in Christ. And so you and I have to continually come underneath Scripture to, to rebuke us, to challenge us, to call us to be who we were created in Christ Jesus to be. The key identifier here is to press in at the very point of inflection to find true, real growth. Let me, let me kind of explain what I mean by that particular sentence. Whereas you and I are prone to, when something rubs us the wrong way, our tendency, and I can tell you, Ten, almost 10 times out of 10, when we don't like something that we hear, our first tendency as humans is to run away or to, or to bristle up a little bit and go, go to fight. In fact, I would argue that at that point of inflection where you feel the most uncomfortable in a conversation with someone else with regards to differences of theological opinions, political persuasions, any of these things, at that inflection point could be a moment where you could grow instead of saying, I'm just going to accept that I don't like that person anymore. <laughs> that is where the real growth can happen. That's where the real maturity happens is when you're able to kind of step in that moment, albeit uncomfortable, and say, I'm going to find out why I don't like what they just said. 
And let me, let me ask them why they said it that way. And let's talk through it. Do you get, and, and, and I think a lot of times even as I'm saying this, I can feel myself put up the guard and say, well, I'm not an infant. I'm not mad at anybody in this congregation at all at this point. I can honestly say that. <laughs> and maybe you might find yourself saying the same thing. Say, I'm not, I don't hate anybody, Matt. Come on. I didn't talk, any, I didn't talk bad about it. I didn't cast shade on anybody. No. But do you get a little jealous of that person because they have gifts and talents that you don't have? When you drop a little disparaging comment about someone else at the kitchen counter with your spouse or with a roommate or something like that, are you fishing for an opportunity to chop someone else up? You're like saying, they said that. Don't they say that a lot? I don't like it when they say that. Do you? You're looking for an opportunity to chop somebody up. That's what is happening in those moments. It's not like it's not a moment where we're growing together here by encouraging. But that's where it happens. It happens around the, the kitchen counters. It happens uh, at, the, at the coffee shops. It happens in those little moments where we can just try to let our jealousy bubble up and we think it's okay. And Paul says it ought not to be that way among the people of God, that you are acting as mere humans, to put it his way. And so Paul says, you've got to get past those elementary principles, as it's said in another place in Scripture. You have to get past the point of being an infant. And so the question is, does Paul really expect you and me to act as something more than human? The answer is yes. Because he says it, twice here, mere humans, mere flesh. You, have to, you and I have to work really hard to get past our competitive natures, past vying for attention, wanting people to, to notice our good works and give glory to us, <laughs> as opposed to being content with our Father, seeing in secret and giving Him glory. We have to get past the power grabs that we would we're, we're, we can be too mature to do on the, in the explicit mode, right? But implicitly to be power grabbing, to say, well, why did they pass me over for that? Or why, why didn't they ask me to do that? Why didn't they do this? Those are all power grabs. And in fact, uh, the farmer poet, Wendell Berry, I've, I've quoted from him before, and I, I wanted to quote from him. He's, he, he draws out this contrast between how we act as mere mortals and what God calls us to be. And he talks about this competition, this draw for competition. He says, he says this, Rats and roaches live by competition under the law of supply and demand. However, it is the privilege of human beings to live under the laws of justice and mercy. We ought not to be content with the power grabs that we see in our culture and within the church. We ought not to be content with the com competition that we feel rearing its ugly head in our own hearts when somebody has something that we want and that we don't have, and then we bite and devour one another. But then secondly, so Paul says, you all are acting as infants when you're letting divisions crop up in your own heart. But then he uses the second imagery of saying, who are we as apostles? And so we see the second image of, of farmers. 
of farmers in chapter or in verse five through nine. Let's just read that together. He says, He says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God, I'm sorry, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. See, Paul lays out two images. One here is going to be farmers. The next one is going to be tradesmen so that they get an idea of what Paul and Apollos and Cephas actually are in God's economy. And it directly challenges the tendencies that we can have to latch onto a certain personality or leader or spokesperson for us. See, this this imagery that Paul borrows is is an antithesis of the Corinthian clamoring for clout. Their desire to be big and have super apostles in their midst that we're going to get into here in a few chapters. See, I mentioned Wendell Berry a few moments ago, and he's had a great voice in the cultural landscape by calling people to their original calling of stewards. See, as strip mining in eastern Kentucky has raked in billions of dollars, it has wreaked havoc on God's good creation and the people living at the bottom of those proverbial and literal mountains in eastern Kentucky. You see, what Barry calls us to do is to plant trees and to cultivate and to care for our neighbor. And it smacks in the face of our culture. This isn't progress in the world's eyes because bank accounts don't always benefit everyone. But it's living for a transcendent truth. Namely, that the beauty of the earth and the goodwill of people is worth sacrifice before my own individualized comforts. So then, this is where it hits. If, you, if you've lost me, go ahead and check in right here. Because I feel like there's a sense of sometimes when you preach, you're like, I think I've lost people. So let's reel it back in because I, just think about this. This is what Paul is talking about as it relates to a church. Do you view the church as something you can get something from? Or as something that you're a part of? In other words, I didn't really get much out of that message, or I didn't get much out of that music, or I didn't get really much out of those conversations with the people. Is the church, as you think about joining a church, as you think about being a part of a church, is the church just a place where you get stuff and you begin to have a a, uh, spreadsheet of like, I like this, I don't like this, I like this, I don't like this, or is it something that God has called you to be a part of to help the flourishing of a church? Too many of us within evangelical Christianity in America, look at the church as a a, a place of goods and services, as commodities that we can just collect for ourselves. Where does community factor into your calculus of what you'll be involved in in a church? Where does it factor in? Is it even on your radar? And Paul is saying we are workers with you. We are workers with you. See, Paul draws attention to this cooperation that the farmer has. Right? He says, I, uh, what does he say here? He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. See, where there's a tendency towards competition, like rats and roaches, 
Paul identifies himself as a co-laborer with other people, the need for other people, that your sanctification will never be complete on your own with just you and Jesus. You need the rubbing off and the butting of heads and the difficulties that only come in community. And I cannot tell you how many people get to that point of inflection of growth and run away. I've seen it time and time again. Where the Lord wants to, to bring growth into your life, and instead of entering into that point, people just run away and say, I just don't like to be known that way. <laughs> I don't want people to know that about me, because that's awkward. Because now every time I talk to them, they know that one particular thing about me. <laughs> that's the point of real growth in your life, is a God bringing you into community with other people to be a co-laborer for your joy, as Paul says in another place. See, both Paul, both Paul and Apollos are servants. They get grimy and they're getting dirty. As, as one commentator put it, planting and watering are both vital. They are interdependent. You can't merely just have watering and you can't just have merely planting and merely tilling. You have to have the whole package together. You need, to put a fine point on it, the person sitting next to you in the pew. Yes, that person. And the person who's sitting across on the other side, you need them too. You need everybody that God has brought into this church. And speaking specifically to Christ the Redeemer, if you're a member here, you need each member of this congregation to be conforming to the image of Jesus. And a lot of times we can say, well, I, I can take it or leave it. And the Lord says, I think you've got that backwards. You don't really understand God's economy of bringing growth into your life if you think that the church is just something that you are meant to get something from as opposed to be something that you are part of. But then secondly, he gives us this second image of what the apostles are. He says they're, they're farmers. And then he also says that they are tradesmen. Look at verse, uh, verses 10 through 15. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, meaning the day when Christ returns, will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. There is so much here, but Paul is moving here from a garden to a building. As in Paul's day, so also in ours. Blue-collar, to be really honest, blue-collar workers aren't revered that much in our society, are they? When you find out that someone is a construction worker, as opposed to a lawyer or a doctor, or you find out somebody is any number of trades, what is your tendency? See, the problem in our culture is that we do not revere the very people that our entire economy and our entire livelihood is built upon. See, they are the backs upon which we rest. And we don't give them the respect and honor that they deserve. They 
build the magnificent skyscrapers that are inhabited by billionaires. They're the ones who fix electrical wires when the dean of a college would get shocked and kill himself. They're the ones who keep us dry and warm and cool in the, in the summertime. Without them, there are no schools. Without them, there are no places of worship. And Paul is aligning himself with the blue-collar worker to say there is a great beauty and a great delight, and this is what we are called to do, the nitty-gritty of life, that there is a great hard work and necessity of this kind of work in ministry, in our living with one another. A lot of times we just want, in our community, we want the the feel-goods of life. We don't like it when it's like, oh, i got to have that conversation with that person. Oh, I just won't mention it. That is ministry. That is what Paul is saying. Is like, my hands got dirty. I laid mortar. Have you all ever laid, laid brick before? It, it's painful work. Your fingers get cracked. Your fingernails get, cr- get busted up. It's painful work. But there ain't no wall. There ain't no building without it. You have to notice the inter- interdependence again. Look at verse 10 again. According to the grace of God given to me, like a master bu- skilled master, master builder, I laid a foundation, but someone else built upon it. Paul sees himself as, hey, I'm just passing through. I, Matt Wireman, will be dead in 100 years. Probably less. You will be dead in a hundred years. And the Lord is saying, what are you building your life upon and what are you building your life into? So that when you're gone, people can say, yeah, yeah, I, I don't know what his name was, but he was faithful in preaching the gospel. He, he or she was faithful in giving their lives away to other people. The Lord is honored when you and I get to the nitty-gritty, the dirty work, so to speak, of being involved in each other's life. See, implicit in this imagery, Paul is telling the church to be careful of who they listen to as well. If there's someone who is flashy and well-spoken, but mere fleshly, they, they look a lot like the world around them, you ought to go somewhere else. See, I've heard of preachers who have green rooms. Or they are elevated beyond just a mere reverence. We've got to be careful about celebrities in our culture. We have to be careful. I just heard about another celebrity pastor who took mustard and was trying to put it on the wall as as an illustration just to get people to say, wow, he's a really amazing communicator. I'm not going to put any mustard on the wall. Yeah, I know it sounds silly. But see, this is part of the, the problem is that you have to keep building more and more notoriety and more and more flash and pizzazz to keep the crowds coming, but that's not going to happen here. We're going to preach Christ and Him crucified. We're going to preach the gold and the silver and the precious stones of this temple and let the hay and the stubble burn away because it will. We have to listen for humility in both words and in actions. Instead of saying, oh, well, that's what's popular right now. Let's, no, run far and fast away from that. See, then Paul circles back because he's, he said that they're infants, but he doesn't leave them there because that would be really not so nice. <laughs> so he circles back to a third, to, to, to this other image as a foundation builder. What is he saying? He's trying to actually lift our minds to the actual building that you and I are a part of 
is what he tries to do. He says, you're, you're infants, but you're part of something much greater. He says, while you're infants who are crying about a bottle, you're not just merely that. See, the building that he is building is not just a strip mall or just a skyscraper. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So the question has been raised a lot of times, how can Paul move so quickly from a garden to the temple? It's really strange. But let me just suffice it to say for the sake of time that the temple was always intended to be a picture of paradise with God. It was meant to be a reflection of that Edenic paradise. If you look inside all of the accoutrements of the temple, it's a gar- it looks like a garden, right? That it was meant to see what life with God is supposed to be like. That's what the temple was meant to be, as a reminder that what was lost in the Garden of Eden will be regained in the new heavens and new earth one day. And see, the church itself is supposed to reflect what paradise, what life with God is supposed to look like. That's what Paul is calling them up into He's saying, you're not merely that. You are God's temple. God's Spirit dwells in you. Look again at Paul's exclamation in verse 17. What does he say? He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. How you and I treat one another as we lay down mortar and pour cement, as we wipe toilets and sweep out cobwebs, Believe it or not, these are infinitely value in God's economy. They're caring for one another as holy ones. As looking at someone and saying, wow, you have been purchased by the Almighty God. So the key here in this passage or in, or in this paragraph here is that when we treat each other with justice and mercy, we are displaying how God is. But when we are contentious and quick to condemn, we are displaying who our true God is when we do that to one another. Regardless of what we say, it's what we do in the nitty-gritty of life. And so Paul says this, he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Those who make amends with jealousy and strife and backbiting are like the Babylonians who destroyed the temple in 586 B.C. And they're also like the Romans who again destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. He says, every time you and I say a disparaging word about somebody else in our congregation, we are no better than the Babylonians, no better than the Romans who did not honor God. He says, when you do that, when you divide and bite and devour one another, you are actually destroying yourself. But then fourthly and lastly, won't be able to spend a lot of time on this point, but we're going to be uh, spending more time in it next week. But for the sake of time, I can't uh, get into this fourth imagery uh, too much. But we've looked at infants, we've looked at farmers, we've looked at tradesmen, and now, fourthly, fools. This is this fourth image that Paul gives. He says in verse 18, he says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. 
For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness, and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. See, Paul ends our chapter by speaking about how God shows those considered wise as the fools they are who deny their creatureliness. I'll say more about this next week like I've already said, but as it relates to Paul's argument, remember how I was saying that the Corinthians were acting as mere flesh, as mere humans? Well, Paul shows that to be a fanboy is to be a fool. And um, it's small-mindedness and nearsightedness to say, I follow that theologian. I follow that preacher. I subscribe to that channel, but never to that one. It's small-mindedness, nearsightedness, factionalism. And so one of the things I did a few weeks ago is I said I had you all find the points in the sermon. Well, this is how I'm going to have you engage with this sermon, is I want you to develop this fourth point a little bit more. So this is an un- incomplete sermon. So point number four is about fools. So I want you, what I want you to do is, remember I said that when there's a passage in the Old Testament that you go back to the original context? So this is going to be how we apply this, this fourth point. I want you to develop the fourth point on your own at your house. So I want you to consider the context of the two passages that Paul uses here. Job 5.13 and Psalm 94.11. So when you go home this afternoon or Monday or Tuesday or whenever, I want you to sit down and say, okay, Paul's talking about fools here in verses 18 through 23. And this is if you want to grow up. If you want to become more than an infant, you've got to do the work to grow up. Don't just say, oh, I'll get that next week, because I'm not going to talk about it next week very much. But if you want to actually, truly, honestly grow from an infant, you say, I'm not an infant. Well, if, you, if, if you're prone to say, no, I'll just put that on the shelf and not deal with it, then maybe you are. And so the way to grow up is to say, okay, well, how is Paul using this in this passage? And this is how point four can be developed. I want you to do that in your own time uh, with the Lord. But let, let's, let's finish up by looking at these last couple verses. And I'd love for you to email me too. Say, hey, Matt, what do you think about how Paul's using Job? I, I was looking at it earlier this morning as well. It's pretty awesome stuff. So uh, it's in the Bible, so it's pretty awesome. But uh, it, it is awesome to see how Paul is using these two passages Again, Job 5.13 and Psalm 94.11. But spend it and email me and let me know what you think and we can dialogue about it. I would love to do that. That would bring me no greater joy than to talk about how Paul is using these passages in his passage. So, but let's look again at verses 21 through 23. He says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. Everything is yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. Consider this. Because Christ rules over all, He created all things, and because you are in Christ, like we saw in chapter 1, every single thing is yours. Not just the basketball, not just the basketball court, but the entire park is yours. Because in Christ who rules over all, your inheritance is the entire cosmos, and so many times we get so so focused on just this particular piece of real estate. And so then Paul says, why are you bickering over a few stars? 
You and I are called to be stewards of one another. God says you have a great inheritance. Isn't that beautiful? He says it's not about men that you follow. It's about an, an inability, inability to see what your inheritance is. He, said, he moves on from Paul, Apollos, then he goes, or the world. Don't you know that all things are yours? The world is yours. Life is yours. Death is yours. The present and the future. Everything is yours in Jesus. And so many times Christians are playing it small by just being factionless, by giving in to division, by giving in to camps. And the Lord says, stop playing so small. Get some muscles on you. Do some push-ups. Do some pull-ups. Grow up. And in growing up, you'll find that you've got everything. Life, death, <laughs> the world to come, all these things are yours in Christ Jesus. So, so the call that Paul is calling us to is for us to step into that instead of being afraid and being fearful that, huh, I wonder if I'm getting it right. The, Paul says, no, it's, all this is yours in Jesus. All this is yours in Jesus. So let's pray. Father, in so many ways, so many ways, the, 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 what I've wanted to convey from this chapter feels so uh, frail in comparison to the beauty and the majesty of what the Apostle Paul has said by the inspiration of the Spirit. There is so much more here. Thank you that we could never mind the depths of this beautiful chapter, let alone this letter. And yet, Father, we ask you to help us, keep us safe from fleshly divisions. Instead, help us to embrace and relish our calling to build into each other's lives, to serve one another, to consider others as more highly than ourselves to love one another, to be the servant of all, to be as little children, and to look to you for our provision. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.